Good morning. Happy third Sunday of Advent. It's good to be with you guys. Will you guys turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 19? Are you disappointed that we're still in 1 Samuel? Were you guys waiting for mangers and uh, shepherds and wise men and such? I am too. But that's okay. We'll get there next week. And I was thinking, actually, as David, this, this dawned on me, as David was reading Isaiah chapter 11, uh, that to proceed doggedly with 1 Samuel is actually one of the best things you could do uh, for Advent, right? Because what you see in 1 Samuel over and over and over again is that a human king, a Saul, a David, a Jonathan, it doesn't matter. All of them are going to blunder in their attempts to lead the people of God. What you need is an Emmanuel. And so the longing that you feel when you read 1 Samuel is exactly the longing that Advent is trying to give you over and over and over again. Reminds you of the longing that Israel felt that we sing about, but also the longing that we should feel with this world broken and bruised and tattered and the news the way it is and such and such. Man, that should really, really cause an ache, I think, in each one of our hearts for Jesus to return. Now, I was thinking also, it reminded me also, in Isaiah chapter 11, this is just kind of like a good thing in terms of, I guess it's not vocabulary, but just knowing biblical history. When you read Isaiah chapter 11 and you read the first verse, right, a shoot will jump forth or come forth from Jesse. If you didn't take the time to read through 1 Samuel, who Jesse is might totally escape you. Because the part that Jesse plays in 1 Samuel is really minimal. I mean, you don't you see him a few times and then he disappears. And I three years ago, for whatever reason, I was reading um, in uh, one of Calvin's commentaries, uh, Calvin's commentary on the book of Isaiah about this thing, because it's odd. You think a shoot should come forth from David, not from Jesse. Jesse's so insignificant. Why doesn't it say David? And what Calvin says about that is, is that by the time that Isaiah lived, David's name had gotten so associated with royal prestige and power that for Isaiah to say, a shoot will come forth from David, would convey exactly the opposite message Isaiah wanted to convey. He wanted to say, a shoot will come forth from a peasant that had no significance in and of himself. That's where Jesus is going to come from. It's from that line that Jesus will come from. And that's actually why we named uh, that section, which I know is totally weird, but why we named our son Jesse, Jesse. If God gives us a girl... This next time, please, Lord Jesus, we won't do anything. I won't name her anything from Calvin's commentary. We would never do her that way. But Jesse, as our second boy, got that. I'm going to read all of 1 Samuel 19. Here's what I want you It's long, but here's a, here's a thing to do to keep your attention while I'm reading. Look for the three different venues that Saul and David find themselves in. And by venues, I mean, I don't mean venues. I mean relationships. You're going to find Saul and David interacting with three different kinds of people. That's where the sermon's going to go. So maybe if you can be looking and listening for that as I read, that'll help you follow along. This is God's Word. 
And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before them. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the cloth clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I might kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed, with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go, why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth, and it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. And then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Secu. And he said, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. Will you pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And Father, we would also pray that your spirit would fall here, but it would fall in a very different way, 
not in a way that would expose us and strip us, but in a way that would clothe us with the righteousness of of your Son. Will you do that this morning in your name? Amen. Well, uh, this morning we come to the pinnacle of the decline of Saul. We saw him floundering and rotting away two weeks ago, and we saw him grasping at every method he could possibly think of to destroy David last week um, through his giving away of his daughter, Michael, to David as a wife. And we've watched him since his inaugural moment stagger around Israel in foolishness, and we've seen him act with deep ingratitude towards everyone he comes in contact with. Those marks, all of those things, these are the marks of someone who is about to fall. These are the marks of someone who just can't go on any longer. And the Game of Thrones that David Gentino talked about last week was a game that never really favored Saul. Since the moment when David King, who will be king, Jesse's son David, was found in the lineup at Jesse's house That David has always been favored in this game of thrones. Even as Saul exercises the full brunt of his power and his authority, we never sense that he'll come out on top. We never do. And so every single verse of every chapter in 1 Samuel, virtually we feel this gloomy sense of dread, waiting for Saul's kingdom and reign to end. But there's something that I think is more interesting in in looking at 1 Samuel 19 this morning. When you read it, it feels like a cat and mouse game, right? David goes here, Saul goes after him. For some reason, David is able to elude Saul, and then Saul chases him some more, and it's kind of like Moby Dick and Ahab. You just watch this thing run all over Israel that way. But I think there's something really fascinating in here. And I think it's a tale of two cities. I think you find in 1 Samuel chapter 19, two cities that emerge from one community. Saul and David, which you see here, and what I was saying you can look for as you read through 1 Samuel 19, have overlapping and interlocking relationships, don't they? Each of them have extremely close relationships with each person or set of people that they come in contact with. But those relationships are governed by two very different sets of attitudes so that they seem to create a whole different set of laws. The way that David relates to Jonathan has a whole different set of laws than the way that Saul relates to Jonathan. The way that David relates to his wife, Michael, has a whole different set of circumstances and images in the way that Saul relates to his daughter, Michael. The way that the community relates to Saul only serves to throw him further off kilter. It serves to rob him of his prudence over and over again. But the very same community, time and time again, serves to strengthen David and defend him. So I guess my question this morning, what I'm curious about is, how does something like that happen? I mean, how do two different sets of circumstances arise from the same community? 
You have one community and you have two different sets of laws in the way that they react to two different people. How do the same people bring judgment upon one person and grace, loyalty, mercy, security, all of these things to the other? And of course, there's a number of answers to that question. The simplest answer is the one that just would come to your mind naturally, and that's, well, God elected David, right? God elected David. He didn't elect Saul. And because of God's election, goodness and mercy is going to follow David all the days of his life. That's the probably the most fundamental and foundational answer. But I want to ask it, I want to ask it from like a horizontal level. And here are my two answers. Why does this community relate to Saul one way and David the other way? The first answer in terms of Saul is Saul had a community of dependency that was built merely on insight. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. David, on the other hand, had a community of dependency that was built entirely on what we will come to know as Christian practice. So I think you see that in the three different areas I mentioned. And David and Saul's relationship with Jonathan, David and Saul's relationship with Michael, and then David and Saul's relationship with the prophets at the end of 1 Samuel 19, which I'm just going to kind of loosely connect to the church, if that's all right. I'm going to think about them, the prophets, as a set of the people of God and think about them as the church. So let's state the thesis another way or the point the other way. Saul went around asking people for their insight and opinion on things, and David moved about this community commanding loyalty and action. So let's see it with Jonathan. We know that, and David Gentino has talked to us about this a number of times, that David and Jonathan give you this incredible archetypical picture of friendship. You see friendship in the relationship between David and Jonathan in a way that you almost don't see it anywhere else in the Bible. I mean, it is loyalty unfettered, and it's all over the place in their relationship. You don't ever catch a moment where that loyalty diminishes for any reason. Jealousy does not crop up. I mean, this is friendship. Uh, This is the cream of the crop, creme de la creme friendship. But Saul has such a different relationship with Jonathan. And we know that obviously the relationship is different, father and son and friendship. I get that. But there's a way that they treat each other that's so, so different. So what happens in our chapter? Saul approaches Jonathan with a proposition to kill David. Now this takes place in what appears to be something like a top secret staff meeting. You know, Saul gets Jonathan, gets all the Israel, uh, all of his you know closest advisors. They get together, and Saul says, "I'm going to kill David." And Jonathan goes to Saul, and he says, "Please don't do that." First, he goes to David, and he warns David, and shows him very practically. Takes David and shows David very practically what the direction of safety was. And then he approaches Saul and makes a case with Saul about the way he should treat David, that he shouldn't put David to death. Now, what I want you to see here is that Saul takes Jonathan's advice. This happens over and at least initially, I mean. And this happens over and over and over again in the life of Saul. I counted seven times, I think, before this moment in 1 Samuel where Saul takes somebody's advice. You've spoken well. You know, he does it to his servants. He does it to Samuel. There's a number of different times. 
And he does it with Jonathan here too. Saul hears the words of Jonathan and he responds by swearing to Jonathan that David would be spared. Now Saul fulfills that oath for a little while. And David returns back to Saul's house. But after a time, David goes back out into battle with the Philistines, strikes the Philistines a great blow. And the envy that Saul struggled with and that was such a temptation for him crops up again. In the exact same moment that you see it happening before with Saul, boom, it happens again. And Saul's oath goes away. And so Saul charges him. That fuels Saul's envy. He charges after David again. But David eludes him. And so, and I'm sure that David was again uh, assisted by Jonathan. But I want you, what I want us to see in that, that small little section, that tightly knit little story, is the difference between the way each person treated their community. When Jonathan goes to Saul, Saul listens to Jonathan's political views. Hey, this... This is a bad move politically for you. Don't do this. This guy has, and in terms of war strategy, don't do that. That's not going to be good for you. He's been good for our army. He listens to Saul, to Jonathan's theology. Don't do this wicked sin against David. He listens to, do, to those two things and he makes an oath. He follows it for a while, but then when temptation comes in the form of envy, he lashes out. David is very different. The relationship between David and Jonathan doesn't have all the trappings of advice and insight and things like that. It's very different. He listens to Jonathan, and he simply depends on him. He puts his life in Jonathan's hands, and he lets Jonathan's loyalty that he's seen over and over and over again be the driving factor that produces his action. Listen to the kind of things that David hears from Jonathan. Not a bunch, not politics. Be on guard in the morning. That tender moment between a friend that says, in the morning you're going to have trouble. Please, please watch out. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself because you're going to need to be cloaked with safety when my father comes, out, comes after you. Because David was humble enough to hear practical words from his friends, not mere insight, he gains a companion. Well, secondly, how does Michael and Saul and Michael and David relate to each other? uh, David flees from Saul, and he does the most predictable thing in the world. He goes home. This is like if you watch any spy or move, you know, any kind of cat and mouse game. The last movie or something like that, the last place you go is home, right? Because that's where the cops are coming. They're coming to your house first. Well, David's pretty predictable. His cunning doesn't take shape outside of an extremely common institution. David only knows a few places to find safety. And so he goes home to his wife. He flees to his family for safety. And so David remains sort of predictable in that way. Now, Michael has a choice to make. Does she follow her father and help Saul put David to death? Or does she build loyalty to David by delivering delivering him from her father's hands? Now, when you read this, you might not immediately know what Michael would do because the relationship between Michael and David, it wasn't like love it. This isn't like a Nicholas Sparks novel, right? I mean, Michael was put in David's life because of a moment of political expediency that we learned about last last week for Saul. Saul thought, if I give Michael to David to be his wife, I might have an opportunity to kill him. So Saul built this marriage on a rocky foundation. 
And so we don't know yet where Michael's loyalty lies, but we learn quickly that it was with David. But why? Why would this young woman, who's only known David for a small time, was forced into a marriage with him? Why would she be loyal to David and not be loyal to the father that she's had her her entire life? Well, surely part of the answer is the obvious thing that she sensed from the very beginning that David loved her, which you learn in 1 Samuel 18, David loved her in a way that Saul never did, and he called that loyalty out from her. Saul, on the other hand, used her over and over again as a tool for manipulation. He was willing to hear her out only when it was expedient for him. He was happy to use her insight to manipulate David, but he had no intention on leading his daughter in a Godward way. He had no intention on seeing the marriage of David and Michael grow into something that would expand the virtue of the kingdom of God. Rather, envy rotted his bones and his own daughter became a tool of manipulation in his hands. But God had very different plans, and the the marriage between David and Michael was a source of life for David. Like we said before, goodness and mercy just uh, seemed to keep following David around. Well, lastly, what happens with, and we'll say a few things by way of application, what happens when David goes to this town called Naoth and he goes after these prophets? What happens then? What happens when David seeks shelter amidst the whole of the people of God? Well, he flees, he leaves Michael, he runs to Samuel, he seeks solace and safety with the people of God, the prophets, which can kind of stand in for a sort of Old Testament version of the church. David runs to Samuel, and from our perspective, he totally disappears. Once you read in 1 Samuel 19 that David is going to see Samuel, he gets there, he doesn't show up in the chapter again. The church clothes David with safety. On the other hand, Saul is exposed as a fraud by the church. Saul shows up to the prophets. He sends his messengers first. They go in. They fall into this fit of spiritual whatever. We don't know what's going on. Nobody, I mean, you could spend all day trying to figure out what's going on, but the reality is we don't know. They fall into some incoherent fit of spiritual ecstasy. David makes it to this place and finds Samuel and disappears. Saul sends his messengers. They get exposed. When, when the Spirit of God confronts these people that are bent on doing David harm, they're sent into this debilitating spiritual fit. And Saul, of course, is stripped completely naked. And you get this sense that the royal garments that Saul wore are gradually being taken from him. His office is slipping out from his hands. And you see God's Spirit clothe David in safety and you start to think, David is really, this is really happening. He's ascending to this throne. The church of God, what would become the church of Jesus Christ was for David a place of safety and it was for Saul a place of exposure. The Spirit wasn't for a minute going to let this temple of prophets become a venue for, and a scene for Saul's anger. His murderous rage, it wasn't going to be a place for division. So each of these three venues made up the community that surrounded David and Saul, but it worked for them in very different ways. Saul sort of prefigures 
uh, his namesake in Romans chapter 7 when that later Saul says, the very thing that promised life proved to be death to me. His family, the church, because he was unwilling to walk with them in the way of Christian practice exposed him. There's one community here, but it's a tale of two cities. Now here's why I think all this is totally fascinating and by way of application. I'm convinced that these three relationships that you see here, our friendships, our family life, and our relationship with the church are the relationships that perplex us the most. These are the relationships that bring us the most joy, but over and over and over again, they have the opportunity to perplex us and confuse us and frustrate us and send us into disarray. We can be, they can be relationships for us like these relationships were for Saul, or they can be relationships for us like these relationships were for David. Here's the distinction, I think, and maybe, maybe, maybe you could put it a different way, but I had this amazing scene happen to me two weeks ago that totally illuminated this text for me. I sat down with a young man from our church, and I was having lunch with him. And he was telling me of some things that he had been dealing with uh, over, that we had spent time talking about over the course of really the last couple of years that had been a source of pain and frustration for him. And this young man says to me, I recently heard a sermon, and it's totally rocked my world, and I want to tell you about it. And I said, please. I mean, because, I, you know, you want to believe that sermons do something like that, that they can change people. And he's saying that he is. And so he tells me, he begins to tell me about this sermon and how at the close of this sermon, the pastor that's preaching the sermon began to confess something to his people. And what he confessed to his people is that for his whole life, his whole Christian life, he had lived as if Christianity was just one big insight or worldview. What I mean by that is like one big book reading or one big sermon listening or one big conversation where somebody tells me something and the light goes off. A big insight or a series of insights that were supposed to transform him. And he said that because he was a pastor, this was troubling because his vocation, is he felt like his vocation was built on these insights. People would come to him with some kind of struggle and he needed to have some sort of sentence or two sentences or three sentences, some kind of insight that was going to change them. But he said he realized that that wasn't true. And my friend, when he was telling me this, said he heard this sermon and he felt like he was being slapped in the face because he said, that's what I've done my whole Christian life. I've gone from pastor to other person to other person and asked for advice and I've gotten it and I haven't been changed. He said he felt like he was being slapped in the face, but I felt like I was being slapped in the face. Because really that's in many ways what I feel like I've done. Gone from person to person to person, getting some new insight, expecting that insight to change. And what this young man said to me is that he realized from this sermon that a little insight can be a facade that shrouds a lack of virtue and an unwillingness to walk with Jesus in the path of obedience. Now, that's definitely been true for me. 
And when he said that, I thought, man, I've, <laughs> this is a wonderful insight. I've never thought of it that way before. But the point was true. We can run from person to person, read books, look here, look there, all the while ignoring the call that Jesus places on our life to do the simplest things, right? I mean, we call it anxiety and we want a quick fix, but isn't it just sometimes, I mean, we all know sometimes it's just a resentment that we're nursing that we're unwilling to go and reckon with. We're depressed and we want out, but oftentimes that's because we're listening to other voices other than the voice of the Good Shepherd. I mean, we all know that's true. This pastor goes on to say that eight years ago, his associate and him were speaking, and they realized that for sure they weren't being changed. It was the same besetting sins over and over again. And they realized that that insight-based model, they were listening to a lot of Tim Keller sermons, this kind of thing, they were not being changed. And they realized that they were being strangled. That vision of the Christian life was being strangled. They saw it in themselves. They saw it in friends. They saw it all over the place. They saw it in Christians. They knew it wasn't transforming them. So they decided another road. They decided to pick up a different method of spiritual formation. And that road was the road of taking up shocker, ancient Christian practices. They decided that they, when they woke up in the morning, they were going to pray. And that they were going to try every day to read their Bible for a few minutes. And that when they went to bed, every night they were going to try to pray again. Just right before they went to bed, they were going to try to do that. And they decided that they were going to actually take seriously the domestic responsibilities that they had at home. And they were going to actually ask each other about them. They decided that they were going to make friends with other people, like real friends. Not just friends you see once every six months and get an insight off of, but people that you look across the table and you say, this is another person that I love and I value because they're made in the image of God and Jesus Christ's blood bought this person. They were going to try to do all of these things and see what happened. Well, he says at the end of this sermon, after three or four years they realized that God was changing them. Now Saul was living in the other way and trying to stay stay the king. He was living insight to insight while David was trusting God hour by hour and walking with his friends, his family, and the church in the way of life abundant, in a way of real flourishing. Where's the gospel in all this? Is this works-based, righteousness, earn your salvation stuff? It's not. It's not at all. No human being has embodied praying twice a day perfectly except for Jesus. And every obedient moment that we have comes from Him. But I do think the gospel prompts us to ask Jesus to make us loyal friends like Jonathan. Men and women that defend our spouses and our families with love. And I think we can be a church that gives those that feel like they're literally running for their lives the cloak of safety. Can we pray together? Father, we love you and we thank you for these truths. We ask that you would make us um, people that truly lean on each other, that lean on the church, that lean on our friends, that lean on our spouses. We pray that we wouldn't rush into things without being guided by each of these things that are good gifts that absolutely come from you. And we pray that your spirit would bind us together 
in harmony, charity, and in love. That he would come and cloak us again like we prayed at the beginning of the service with your son's righteousness. And that he would train us to lives that are not only lives of word but deed also. In your name we pray. Amen.